millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together, we're Pete and Gary's Military History. Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> yeah, hello, good. Pete. Hello, Gary. How are you? I'm very well. It's a long time since I've said hello to you. It is. Seems all of a second. Yes, indeed. Right. Um, right, what are we doing today, Gary? Well, today, Pete, uh, we're continuing our long-running series, <laughs> <coughs> the South Knots Cesars in Peacetime, although I think we might have to change the title soon. To the South Knots Cesars, the Warwickshire Yeomanry. No, because like the, the, the army that you know I served in, there are enormously long periods of boredom where nothing happens and you're just... You know, hanging about, drinking and having a good time. And then suddenly somebody goes and spoils it with a war. Yeah. Now, uh, so the Soviet menace, what's been happening to that? Well, they they became less menacing around this <laughs> well, period. Or so we thought. Or so we thought, <laughs> yes. And uh, they became more involved in the wider world. And, and we sort of started to re- withdraw the troops from Germany and yeah. everything was going to be rosy. What the could symbolic, possibly go wrong? symbolic fall of the Berlin Wall. And, you know, it's it, the world. Safe for democracy, Gary. Safe for democracy. My symbolics fell when I was about 13. Now, however, sadly, I'm thinking of your symbolics dropping now. Sadly, new enemies spring up, don't they? It's as if they were just waiting for the Soviets to go away. So what happened? Well, there was the vague threat of global terrorism, and it finally hit home when Al-Qaeda launched their deadly airborne attack on the Twin Towers in New York on the 11th of September 2001. Yeah, the, the Americans, because they call it 9-11, that's very confusing. It took me ages to, to work out that that was the 11th of September. Ninth month, 11th day. Stupid Americans. Now, Sorry, American chums. Hello, lovely person who wrote Scotty Doesn't Know, which we were just listening to. Uh, this attack traumatised the whole of the US. This was not some unsubstantiated threat or attack on their military outposts across the globe. No, no, this is a direct attack. It's right at the very heart of the country, isn't it? And what was their response? Well, led by President George W. Bush, it was a a determined response with a war 
against terrorism. Now, that was extended to all states hostile to the US who were implicated in supporting terrorists. Now, which, which bunch of complete nutters join in with this? Well, it's not long before Britain, as the uh, special relationship long-standing ally of the US, was drawn into a series of radical foreign policy moves which would transform the world situation. Now, one part of this was a heightened suspicion of all Muslim states who were seen as being opposed to the Western way of life. Have we got a way of life, Gary? <laughs> or is that just the drinking and the running around? That is our way of life, <laughs> yes. Well, it was. <laughs> uh, so who's the first target? Well, first target is Osama bin Laden, who's the leader of the Al-Qaeda movement. And uh, where was he? Well, he was being harboured by the Taliban regime, uh, ruling in post-Soviet Afghanistan. I remember when the Taliban were the goodies. I remember all those films where we bravely... I think- I think they were called the Mujahideen when they were the goodies. That's completely different, is it? Absolutely. Now, after the usual exchanges of threats in September 2001, Afghanistan was invaded and the Taliban government overthrown by a potent combination of US air power, coalition special forces and the anti-Taliban Northern Alliance forces. I've forgotten about most of this, had you? Uh, I'd watched a programme recently, actually, about the Northern Alliance forces. Mm. Uh, Bin Laden? Well, he escaped. For then. <laughs> and uh, his influence seemed undiminished. Now, the, the US is also looking at other countries and, uh, and, and it always fell upon the antics of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Uh, they'd been in a... T- it's a war that we don't talk about, but the war with Iran was a terrible First World War-like war. Wasn't it? I mean, the casualties and the murder and mayhem. Anyway, uh, soon uh, Iraq is the new enemy and they're the next move in the, the war against terrorism. Yeah, now back in the UK, the beginning of the new millennium found Major Jeremy Higgins still in command of 307 Battery, because this is actually about the South Knots who's on. Is it? Fine body of men. Now, it was to be a busy year. In January, some 21 members of the battery were part of a composite battery sent out under an annual exercise to the far-off Falkland Islands to test fire the uh, light guns held yeah, there. Yeah, 105mm light gun. Yeah, they're, 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 they're doing that. What's happening close to home? Well, uh, they're, 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 they've got a new, a new weapon they're, they're getting ready to train for. Uh, what's that? It's the huge self-propelled AS-90s, which was in use by the regular units, to whom they might well be deployed in the event of a mobilisation. Yeah, because this is they're not going to be deployed as no, a regiment. change of emphasis now, isn't it? It's just individuals. So the first batch of gunners, they're sent down to the tender mercies of the first RHA, uh, who were at Tidworth Barracks at the time. Tidworth Barracks. We've been to Tidworth Barracks. Yeah, Chris Carling used to be based at Tidworth Barracks, where I first met you. Yeah, I remember that. It was like a romantic moment looking across the pub floor that was covered in all sorts of stuff. Not me. I was was, was erect, but that's just not going to wear. The censors will have us on that. Oh, dear. Uh, Anyway, um, what does Higgins think about this training programme? Well, he wasn't entirely happy with the way his men were treated, but these were early days for such regular territorial joint initiatives. And this is what Major Jeremy Higgins of HQ 307 Battery 100 Regiment, remember? Yeah, yeah. Says. 
Although they trained on two guns initially, they split all our soldiers across their battery, which probably achieved a little bit of cross-pollination, but there's a fair amount of rib taken by the regulars of the TA, of the TA people, so taking the piss, he means, yeah. It would have been far better if we could have manned one or two guns and shown those gun crews to have been able to do the job, whereas at the individual soldier level, I think it was perceived that, ew, TA wallers can't do the job at all, and they weren't given the responsibility to show that they could do anything and they basically humped ammunition for four days when they went out firing rather than being able to practice the skills they required. At the higher level, the commanding officers and the regimental sergeant majors, major, not majors, uh, there, there was a very good and positive relationship between us and them. He means between 307 battery and and, and uh, one RHA. They very much had a belief that we had a part to play in supporting them. So he's saying at command level, it's all good. But at the lower level, what did you call them? Soldiers. No, what did you call TA soldiers? Soldiers. Didn't, Gary? Yes, we did. Now, this was you followed can't... up. <laughs> this was followed up by a joint annual camp at Bullwell and a firing camp using the AS90 alongside the first RHA. The AS-90 was a very different proposition from the light gun. And this is Sergeant Sam Jordan of 426 Troop 307 Battery. She was the woman who'd gone on to uh, 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 Smudge Smith's gun. and uh, That's right. And he, and he taught her. Every, very unwilling at first, but she'd proven herself a great gunner. And she was fabulous. What does she say about it? The AS-90 is too computerised. If one thing went down, then everything stopped. And you had to do everything by manual. When the computer is working, the layer has got like a joystick and you just move it and the barrel moves with it and it's done. It's all tight and compact. The layer sits in a seat. The number one sits in a seat with their head out of the turret. The number four stands outside the turret while it's on the move with a mounted machine gun. And for the rest, it's really cramped inside. You haven't got much room. You can have one round loaded, one on the loading tray clamped in and then another one on a separate arm. It's all semi-automatic loading. If it knows that it's going to have three round fire for effect because the number one puts it in, then when it goes bang, bang, the loading tray automatically comes back down and the arm flip the other shell on and all you have to do manually is open the breech, put the charge up, close the breech. It's fantastic when it works and you can do three rounds in 15 seconds. But when you've got to do it manually, you've got lads trying to pick up 96-pound shells all cramped up. So you need guys with really strong arms and big hands who can just pick a shell up and put it on. It's so tight and cramped. Now, there's another problem that, that I, I can see with, with, with firing guns. In uh, what, what can you imagine? Well, very similar to the Great War. There was a problem with the fumes that built up inside the turret. Like a bit like thing. with the tanks, yes. Uh, and that caused several gunners to feel ill. Tough course, I would say. Yeah, and the regular NCOs who were training them made no allowance for the impact of any uh, skill fade amongst the gunners. We get skill fade with working this well, machine, don't I think, we? I think you have to have a skill for it to fade, to be honest. Now, this had always been endemic within the TA, but it was, of course, entirely foreign within the regulars who were working at their basic skills all the time. Most of the South Nazis found that they needed a little while to get up to speed. So what does Captain Richard King, 426 troops, say? 
We would spend half the morning trying to get our act together. The constant problem with the TA is skill fade. If you fire for one weekend and you fire four or five times a year, then it's very easy to get out of routine. You forget your drills and things aren't done right and you spend all your time working out What's gone wrong? Now, back in the, sorry, in the UK, they've got another problem coming up. A 2001, I remember this vaguely, they had the dreaded foot and mouth disease. I've often thought that you look like the sort of person to catch that. Uh, uh, but I think it was amongst the cattle, to be, yeah, to that, be fair. Uh, I often thought that you might be the sort of person to get this. <laughs> I'm not giving that point up. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, uh, all, all camps, all, all, all camp training that involved camps is cancelled. Because remember, there was restrictions on movement in the, around the country. Um, now, what's the most exciting thing, do you think, for a gunner? What do you think gunners look forward to most, other than sex and drugs and rock and roll? Well, not drugs in the army. Drinking. <laughs> not a drug, alcohol, is it? What do you think they most look forward to? I'm just letting you trip yourself up there. You just keep going. Uh, well, live firing was the most satisfying part of a gunner's training, and this posed a huge problem for Jeremy Higgins, and he says this. How am I going to maintain the interest, motivation and attendance of people that primarily want to go out in the field, and we can't get into the field? We came up with an active way of using our TA to the best of our ability. We had a 24-hour charity day relay race, and round that, loads of other games. We use the Invertron, that's a, a sort of s- synthetic thingy, uh, in a more imaginative way. <laughs> Why are you gesticulating at me, Gary? <laughs> we tried to link up our training more. It was quite remarkable how we managed to keep things going. Now, Jeremy Higgins, he carries on serving. He's a very successful battery commander. And you've met him. A lovely bloke, lovely bloke. Uh, and uh, he serves till October 2002. And then he hands over a, an orderly succession within the battery. Who too? It's you, Gary, isn't it? It's the part played by you. And one of my favourite members of the Southampton's are. So is it? You mean Major Ian Aldershaw? Why do we, remind, why do we always mention him? Well, because he started out, if I remember rightly, as, as a private, introduced by his brother, wasn't it? Yeah, to, 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 getting, to straighten him getting up. getting into trouble. Yeah, things. nothing serious. I don't want to give any... But, but no, just, no, no, but just being a, a, just, a lad. Just a, yeah, just a bit, a bit like yourself, Gary, in your youthful prime. <laughs> I'm still in my prime. Now, Ian Oldshaw was inclined to carry on much in the manner established by Jeremy Higgins. Now, as such, he carried on the same kind of consultations and briefing meetings with the central team formed by himself, the new battery captain Richard King, and inevitably... Oh, oh, inevitably. Captain Bob Privet. Great name. Good old Bob. Uh, he, I mean, he'd, he'd got a good working re- relationship already with Colonel Tim Kidwell, who's the new regular commanding officer of 100 Regiment. Uh, although, the, the, you know, the, the next one was uh, Tony Colonel Tony Russell, and that's he was a TA officer. And Aldershaw was um, he had a bit of trouble with uh, with that because he. he what he want? What does he want most of all? He wants a period of just steady as you go. After, after, you know, he wants his period of command. Uh, older short wants. He wants it to be just steady as you go. You know, no messing about. Just calm. And this is what Major Ian Oldershaw of Headquarters Three Hundred Seven Battery says. I think you can come in and bang a big stick and have the wrong effect on the people, particularly the boys downstairs. I think they were looking for a period of stability. 
Yeah, because things going on. Now, Ian Oldshaw was a very popular man. He still is to this day in in, in the battery and and, and things. And uh, this is what 2nd Lieutenant Alistair Burns, 520 Troop, says. He's come up through the ranks and understands the soldier's way of thinking, but he had grown to understand the officer's way of thinking in dealing with political issues. He's taught me a great deal in when to say something and when not to say something (laughs) that he's learned through his experience and that he's passed on to me. He commands the respect of the battery, a bit like I command your respect. Yeah, and you've taught me when to say things and when not to say things. Yeah, but... (laughs) But a sort of reverse way. <laughs> what? In other words, you... Yes, I see. Bastard. Because you were told not to swear last night in your uh, oh. YouTube recording with Lucy, weren't you? Yes. Yes. And what did you do? I swore accidentally. Mm. Now, <laughs> early, early in Ian Aldshaw's period in command, Sergeant Sam Jordan was promoted to staff sergeant. Now, what does that mean? It's quite an important promotion. Well, it meant that she now controlled a gun section rather than her own beloved gun detachment. So more than one gun. Yeah, and yeah. she was charged with improving gunnery standards across the board. Now, I think Sam Jordan was a very impressive uh, young NCR. I don't know what's happened to her since, but uh, to, in the end, her, her record matches that of her mentor, who we recall was Troop Sergeant Major Smudge Smith. What, you mean she went around punching people? <laughs> no, the gunnery skills. Um, uh, she, as gun, when she was gun number one, she, she won the best gun competition seven times within 307 Battery and the best in the whole of the 100 Regiment four times. Now, that's the, right, the whole regiment. So that's three batteries. It's, it's a fantastic achievement. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, the South Knots have their own perspective of it, don't they? What do they th- say? Well, it was the vigorous contention of her A-gun detachment that only political considerations within the upper echelons of the regiment had prevented her making it a clean slate. And what does she say? She says this. Promotion means that I won't be able to enter any more artillery competitions, but I am determined to train the next champion shot. Now, it's to her enormous credit that one of her guns here... Now, when we get to wartime, we made a decision because this is really recent. It's not like talking about the Second World War. We have given people, uh, what do you call it? Nom de plumes. Nom de plumes. So one of her team, Bombardier Warren, why? <laughs> why? Why Warren? <laughs> not Warren Smith or Smudge, but this is Warren Why. Uh, he'd not only take over a gun detachment, but he'd lead it to continued success in the various competitions. And that is, again, to her credit, and, and also to Bombardier Warren's uh, credit. Um, now, uh, before Ian Aldershaw's really got his, well, his feetsies under the table, uh, what, what's happening in the bigger world? We've, we've referenced it already. Yeah, it becomes apparent that the prolonged saga of US and UK opposition to the re- regime of Saddam Hussein in Iraq had moved into a critical Well, can phase. you describe that? Can you take us in some detail into this, Gary? Uh, no, the history of this doesn't need to concern us here, Pete. Oh. <laughs> Now, the failure of Saddam Hussein to comply with the terms of the Gulf War ceasefire had led to both economic sanctions and the declaration of US and RAF patrolled no-fly zones, barring the Iraqi Air Force from operating in sections of their airspace. Yeah, when you read that, you, sometimes you think, are we the goody? I mean, I, I actually can't stand Saddam Hussein, but you, so, sometimes we're not that good either. Um, uh, there was a lot of suspicion about Washington and London that Saddam Hussein <coughs> had... Uh, 
not let up in his effort, uh, efforts to, to secure what? Well, it was referred to at the time as weapons of mass destruction. And United Nations weapons inspectors had been engaged in attempts to determine what was really happening. I, I remember at the time there was that shocking report that said it could deliver a nuclear attack within 45 minutes yeah, or something. Yeah, that was all lies, I think. But uh, that's, a, that's possibly my political perspective on the thing. Uh, the, the Iraqi authorities, they didn't really help much, did they? I mean, there are two sides to this whole thing. And, and we, me and Gary are well, Gary and I. I'm well aware of the Gary fact. Sheffield. Gary, no, not Gary Sheffield. Lovely Gary. Gary Sheffield. Brain. Gary Brain. Yeah, him. Uh, um, no, Gary. We're not talking about Gary Sheffield and Gary Brain. We're talking about Gary. What's your surname? Bain. Now, <laughs> both President George W. Bush and Prime Minister Tony Blair soon determined that this fraught situation couldn't be allowed to continue. Yeah, lots of sabre rattling, and uh, by late two thousand two, the the. The, our leaders in the free world, well, US, US and Britain, and Britain anyway, uh, decided on a policy of regime change. Um, yeah, we do that a lot, don't we? In other words, it meant that Saddam Hussein was to be removed come what may. I can hear a ticking, a strange <laughs> ticking. What is it, Gary? Well, it was a, a, a timetable that was to lead inexorably tick, to tock, war. Tick-tock. Um, US diplomatic offensive that results in the passing of a United Nations Security Council Resolution 1441, which calls for the resumption of unfettered weapons inspections and referring to the prospect of serious consequences were it not to be achieved. Uh, Saddam Hussein? He remains resolute in his defiance, and in Washington, this was considered a sufficient reason for war. And what about, what about uh, Bush's lapdog? Uh, do you mean uh, Tony Blair? Well, he just goes along with it, doesn't he? As the forces began to gather in the Middle East, it was apparent that unlike the Gulf War, there was to be no mass coalition against Iraq. Yeah, it's going to be a US and UK affair mainly. Uh, and what was the US code name for the intended operation? I love this. Uh, it's the somewhat vainglorious Operation Iraqi Freedom. Uh, British um, Army, um, do we um, have something equally inspiring? Uh, yeah, it doesn't use such descriptive code names. It rejoiced under the somewhat more prosaic Operation Telic. Yeah, Optelic. Uh, and that's what the South Nazis refer to it from now on. Uh, um, some of the young gunners are the, under Aldershaw's command, they, 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 they couldn't probably have guessed that they were gonna, they, they, they were gonna be part of this, could they? No, and, uh, nor indeed did Aldershaw himself. And this is what he says. I love this quote. <laughs> I never even considered going to bloody war. It all just seemed to come at once. We got briefed more and more signals from regimental headquarters, briefings from the commanding officer. Now, Aldershaw and Bob Privet, that's the, uh, the, the well, the admin officer, they've, they've got to take the, it's extremely seriously because they, they don't know what's going to happen. I mean, we know what happened, but they didn't know what was going to happen. And they needed to know where they stood because this is people's lives they're talking about. And I want people to realise that in this podcast, it's getting very pointy now, isn't it? It's, this isn't a joke anymore for the South Nazis. ours. No, and it is our point about, you know, life in the army. They've gone from mundane, routine, boring to absolute terror. Yeah. And what does Aldershaw say? Who was going to go? Will it be the whole battery? Will it be one or two? 
We got no idea and we decided to do a little bit of what we might call strategic planning and looked at every soldier we had, whether they were married, whether they were single, whether they had jobs, their ranks, their age, whether they had got dependents, all those sorts of things, things we knew about people as well as making sure we've got up-to-date contacts so that we could then say that if people were going to get called up, who would we want to go? Our opinion was... Let's see who wants to go first. They will be the guys that we will send. The army called this whole process intelligent mobilisation, <laughs> leaving it to the units to put names forwards. And they would just call for numbers and leave it to us to give names. I felt a little bit aggrieved by that because I felt the army was pulling away from the responsibility, looking at people and calling for volunteers, but you have to then tell them why you've chosen them and then be able to explain it to their families. And that's that's a big point because, remember, people could get killed. Uh, and and Aldershaw is a uh, he, he understands his responsibility. Uh, people have dependents, don't they? Young, old. Uh, they've got. What about their employers? Are all employers sympathetic? No, absolutely not. Uh, there's welfare cases uh, where, where families are just such that you cannot call them up. It it would be uh, disastrous for a family. Um, now th- there's also the, you, how do you spread the load between ranks, Gary? I mean. Well, and the trades, even the sexes, so that the battery was not suddenly denuded of a particular specialisation or type. Now, most batteries were completely unaware that this process was going well, on. The men in the battery didn't know. And what did Ian Aldershaw said? say? Say, 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 say. I didn't want people to know who I decided would go should we be called on to send people to war, because I didn't want people to be worried or because there might be no point. We just did our planning because the fewer people that knew, the better. I believe that mobilisation was about a calm, older head rather than a thrusting young captain who wouldn't see the welfare welfare point of view that Bob and I would be looking at. And on that note, let's have a little little pause, perhaps an advert for pile ointment or something, and a little bit of a think about where we are. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Now, around this time, Second Lieutenant Ali Burns and some of the young gunners were attending courses at the School of Artillery at Lark Hill. Now, while they were there, Burns became aware that there was a call for volunteers from 100 Regiment for possible service in Iraq. Unaware, perhaps, of the measured approach being adopted back at Ballwell, Burns leapt into action. Yeah, he, he goes off half-cock, doesn't he? And this is what 2nd Lieutenant Alistair Burns says. We called them all together. I explained the situation. I asked for volunteers there and then. I bet, I bet Aldershaw was pleased. I then said I would ask them to confirm it for me the following morning, and then I would put their names forward to Captain Privet. It was a weird feeling, a responsibility. I had to stand up and ask people if they wanted to go to war. I said that they had not to think about themselves, but also what their parents were going to think. They couldn't just make the decision on their own. They were hugely ex- inexperienced. And, uh, you know, it, 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 he has gone off a half cock there. But on the other hand, you can he's, he's a good young officer, Alice. Uh, we'll see what happens to Ali Burns himself later on in the series. Now, the young men who volunteered were aware of the presence of troops training in preparation for their deployment to Iraq and further moved by the eloquence of young Ali Burns to put their names down in a burst of patriotism. Yeah, but it's this very youth and inexperience. These volunteers have been, you know, been sort of enthused. Uh, what do the older and more experienced officers think? Well, it, it creates a fear amongst them. And this is Battery Captain Richard King of HQ 307 Battery. They'd not really appreciated what it was they were going to be doing. I don't think any of them really considered that they might die. It was very naive of some of them that were going, just not understanding what to expect. We were sending uh, that had been in the battery six months. I was so concerned that they had no life exposure. They'd lived at home all their lives, protected by their mothers, Guys who have never been away from home, never really been out of Bullwell and Nottingham. Yeah, and this is what Ian Oldshaw, it's a tremendous responsibility on them. Suddenly, we're sending them to the Gulf. Gary, that was, that was so pregnant with emotion. And what does Ian Oldshaw say? You know, I mean, how does he react? I mean, because I, I think he's been in a terrible position, really. He is, and this is what Major Ian Oldershaw says. I stopped people from going and I put people forward who probably didn't want to go. It would have made my life far easier and I would have had less sleepless nights if I'd let go people who said they wanted to go. Because it's very easy to say, well, you wanted to go, you made the choice, you get out there. I started to think, shit, I'm going to be the first battery commander for over 50 years sending people to war that are likely to die. Waking up to that reality is very, very difficult. I couldn't go while in position. I couldn't really go. You can't really make the decisions and be there as well. I'm not saying I would particularly want to go. I don't think I would have been a volunteer to go to war. I wish they had mobilised the South Nazis as a whole. We'd have all gone and we would have taken all our welfare problems with us. It would have made my life a lot easier and I would have slept easier. And I think that's, that's a, a great point. 
his mind's whirling, isn't it? And he's he's going round into he, he he just rather he wasn't making his decision. They just said right three oh seven, you're yeah, mobilised. You're all off. And he wouldn't have volunteered, but he would have gone. And that's first of all mobilised a lot of you. You, the, you know, they, they had the the vote. You know. But there's tremendous peer pressure on people to say they were going. Well, you know, and Absolutely. Can... Now, back at Ballwell, men from the battery were slowly becoming aware that they were liable to being called up. Bombardier Warren Y had a premonition that he would be required and began to mentally prepare himself for the challenges ahead. And this is what Warren says. Before I got my papers, I, I thought, yeah, yeah, I'd like to do this. Possibly the only chance I'm going to get in my career to go and do the job properly. You start almost preparing yourself for it to happen. I, I know what my looks like. <laughs> Myself and my girlfriend started discussing what we would do if I got my call up. Really hard discussions. We would stop together. One of us would be going off and would, 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 would be, be coming back. Um, these were the conversations that were needed, I think. I wanted to make sure that we talked about it. So when it happened, it wasn't a nightmare. We were pretty much prepared. Yeah, are you going to stay together? Because he's going to be away for a long while. Uh, a lot of relationships aren't necessarily permanent you know are you going to stay together or are you going to break up what's going to happen are you going to get married are we going to stay together well we'll we'll see later gary now others such as troop sergeant major andy p were caught rather more by surprise he'd initially volunteered but began to have second thoughts when his personal circumstances had radically changed that's that's another thing isn't it after you've made the decision something can happen and this is Troop Sergeant Major Andy P of the Command Post 425 Troop. I got a phone call about nine o'clock from the battery commander and he said, I thought I'd better give you a ring before the postman comes. I said, why is that? He said, because you've got your call-up papers. Yep, the individual mobilisation papers arrive in January 2003. Uh, and, it, and eight of the units uh, were called up. And they, they're the ones we're going to be looking at are Andy P, Dan Z. These are just nonsense things. Adam X, Andy Mullins. Ah! Andy, Andy Q. Andy M. <laughs> God almighty, what an idiot. And Ray A. <laughs> Sorry, Andy. <laughs> uh, it's a real moment of truth, is it? Can you imagine? I mean, uh, I mean, you were in the army, but you were never called to go to war. I mean, can you imagine what people are thinking? Well, you're required to leave the security and comfort of a, a civilian life because it's even worse. They're not regulars. Yeah. Uh, and go out to a dangerous and uncomfortable future. Even those with the reg with regular army experience were a little shaken by the implications. Yeah, because of course you've got to remember a lot of TA members had been in had been regulars and 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 were now in the TA having finished their regular service. And and what does Troop Sergeant Major Andy P say? I think Andy P might be Andy M. <laughs> Get a bit muddled up here. I, I was scared but keen to go. I'd been in the military God knows how long and I wanted to prove I could still do it. I was thinking I'd be going out there as a command post or recce party bod where all my 18 years of experience came from. Frightened because at the end of the day I was going to a war environment and the word war itself is scary. You've got to uh, the ink about your you've family. You've got to think about Oh, you've yeah. got to think about your family and friends back home and how they're going to cope. How they're going to feel about you going. I was dumbstruck. My mum's always been a bit of a worrier. She said, oh, son, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to go. 
It's my job. Yeah, and that's the eternal thing of soldiers going off to war. And, you know, not necessarily keen, but it, it's their duty. It's, it's their what you're paid for. As he put it, it's his job. It's a duty. Uh, now, just a couple of months later, Sergeant Warren Y found, found his premonitions were accurate as he got a delayed call-up in March 2003. And, and uh, he and another Sergeant Paul uh, D were replacements for men called up and found physically wanting. That's another question. Are you up to the job? And this is what Bombardier Warren said. It really is an A4 army brown envelope. Either taxman or the army. <laughs> Ooh. Either way, you're going to shit yourself. <laughs> it would break a concrete floor. It's that thick with all the paperwork and instructions of things you have to do. These were forcible mobilisations. Uh, this is a key point, isn't it? You had to you had to be in jail or have a doctor saying he's not eligible to go for you not to turn up. Otherwise, the Royal Military Police will be round your house and you'd be arrested. You're required to turn up at this time, at this date, or you will be jailed. And this is the point. Once their names have been sent in and they've accepted it and, and the rest of it, that's it. It's now compulsory. The, this is a compulsory mobilisation once it gets to this stage. Now, it's inevitable that they took an increased interest in affairs in Iraq and many pondered on the justification, one way or another, for the war. And this is signaller Dan Zed. Uh, I don't personally agree with the way the war was initiated. All this weapons of mass destruction bollocks. I personally think they should have just said, Saddam's a bit of a bad lad, let's go kick him out. <laughs> I think that would have been justification. In other words, he means say what you mean rather than tell lies. I think he's had weapons of mass destruction, but he hasn't got them anymore. He got rid of them. I don't see the point in lying to the public about something you don't need to lie about. I went over the border to get rid of him because I knew he was a nasty piece of work and gassed people and committed atrocities. That was my personal reason for going over the border. And I think that's, you know... I remember being anti the this war, but uh, you can't argue with that. Uh, I mean, he was a nasty piece of work. And that was the motivation for Dan, uh, and I, I respect it. Now, they were also uh, uh, thought that although they were called up, they were not forced to go. Well, they were, but they, were, they could find reasons or excuses. Uh, uh, but, but, what do you mean, the, to sort of get them off the hook? Yeah, but, I mean, they're... they're you have to have a real... Well, as the bloke said, you have to be a prisoner or get a doctor to do it. But there's also, you know, the, the moral obligation to respond to the call. Either they were soldiers or they weren't, and, and that's what lay at the bottom of much of their thinking. And this is once more Bombardier Warren Why? If you're in the TA and you're not prepared when somebody says, uh, we need you to go here because we need to fight this war, then what the hell are you doing in the TA? People who did that when they went to mobilisation, as far as I'm concerned, they should be kicked out of the TA. It's just the wrong attitude. If they think it's just a laugh and a joke, well, it's change. It's a very serious business these days. And this is the, all the South Not Cesars, we've been talking about them in peacetime. Oh, but it's not peacetime now, is it? And that's that. That's what's been underpinning this whole bloody series of of of, uh, record, of uh, podcasts, isn't it? Even though we didn't know. No. 
Now, for, for one, the arrival of the call-up papers was a particular blow, for he found that, for whatever reason, he'd not been selected. As it was, uh, it was him who had first persuaded several of the men to put themselves forward. He found it difficult to square with his own view of the role of an officer. Oh, dear. Uh, well, this is, I remember talking to him, and he was upset years later when I interviewed him. Second Lieutenant Alistair Burns, 522. I wanted to go. It was very difficult for me. You've got to lead from the front. The reason I was given for me not being able to go was that I didn't have a qualification because I hadn't finished my command post officer's course. I said, right, well, can I go as a Lance Bombardier? I was told not to be so stupid <laughs> and to go away and think about it. What did they say when uh, in the army you were... You uh, you said you wanted to be uh, a padre. Uh, did Something similar to that, but there was one or two more expletives. Mm. And did you ever become a padre? Yes, I am the Archbishop of Canterbury. Ah, brilliant! We'll have a little prayer afterwards, shall we? Now, other officers were willing to go, but with young families and responsible jobs, they'd wait until they were called up before going. And this is Battery Captain Richard King. My view has always been that I wouldn't volunteer, but that if I'm mobilised, there's an obligation for me to go. I've discussed it long and hard with my wife, as I'm sure every other TO soldier has done the same. I think that's, uh, that, 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 that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, now, that, that, how sensible is that? That, you know, he's a good, he's a good bloke, Richard King. Uh, so the, the men that called up, where, where do they have to go? They go, where are they going? Where do they go? Where is the uh, reserve training and mobilised centre? How far away is it from sunny Nottingham? Is it miles away? Is it, is it? Chilwell Barracks. Where's that? Nottingham. <laughs> better, better. Uh, and, and that's where all the reserve personnel were being called up from all over the country. They all went to Nottingham. Um, well, it, it was a, a much more technological process than the Great War. Here they were issued with a barcode identity to speed them through the complex administrative process of turning a civilian into a soldier. And I like to think of them being swiped through the barcode reader. Beep, didn't, didn't beep, they, beep. Didn't they have them in the Great War? No. Now, there were simply oodles of basic paperwork recording all their personal details. There would be, wouldn't there? Um so, uh, uh, so, so, what sort of? Uh, yeah, well, it's just got tons and tons of tons of paperwork. Uh, what else? They're, well, they're informed of their right, the pay and and allowances rights. That yeah, well, that cheered them right up because they seem to be reasonably generous. But that's soon counterbalanced by the grim necessity of making a simple will and organising life and kit insurance. Oh well, uh, that that's all a bit. Uh, but the the army is also it's good about welfare. Well, what is it doing about about the families uh, that they're leaving back home? Uh, why, why am I impressed by this? Well, they made sure that the families were aware of what the army could do for them if things went wrong, either in Iraq or back at home. The uh, welfare arrangements were spelled out and phone numbers issued for their families to call in case of need. The South Knots Hussars had made their own arrangements to reassure and support the worried families. And this is once more Troop Sergeant Major Andy P. What does he say? <laughs> Captain Privet got hold of all the people who got mobilised. From day one, my mum felt really welcome. She used to write to me saying, I went to the TA centre and spoke to your major. My mum hit it off so well. They had a meet and greet night and the wives and relatives would come into the mess and Bob would put on tea and cakes. So they're talking to each other. Have you heard from your son? Yes, my son's done this and that. Oh, I've not heard from my son for God knows how long. And so on. She loved it. Loved being part of it. 
So she felt reassured that I was being looked after. She knew that if anything happened, she would go straight to Bob. She knows him, and he wouldn't muck That's her Bob around. Privet, yeah. She told every Tom, Dick and Harry in the local village that her son was in Iraq. She was worried, but she was boasting. Yeah, and, and they're, they're making sure that the men are in a fit state for the trials that, are gonna, that lay before them. Now, so, so, so what does that entail? There's, there's various parts of this, isn't, isn't there? Yeah, they're put through an exceptionally strict medical to establish their intrinsic personal health, including testing of body weight, blood pressure, hearing, eyesight and the state of their teeth. I'd foul on all of them. Now, Gary, your teeth are lovely. Your teeth are... They're, they're, they're immaculate, your teeth. Now, once they passed... The rest of They were formally mobilised and became temporarily, at least, full-time soldiers of the Queen. <laughs> the soldiers of the Queen. Did you... You seem distracted, Pete. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get these volume levels right. <laughs> they're just all over the place. Um, now, uh, they're also, there's something else that happened. So this was quite famous at the time. What's that? Well, again, very similar to the Great War. They were uh, liable for a, a dreadful series of vaccinations and immunisations, which seemed designed to ruin rather than preserve their health. Yeah, I think that's... <laughs> Yeah, you couldn't. Yeah, th- that's absolutely the case, isn't it? Yeah, there was a cocktail of jabs, including what, what, what? Hepatitis A, B, and C, typhoid, polio, diphtheria, yellow fever, and good old tetanus. Um, what, what, what are the results of these vaccinations? Well, they got flu-like symptoms that wrapped them as a as a reaction to the optional anthrax jab. Uh, and that was so bad that most decided to take their chance and evaded a second injection. <laughs> yes. Um, so what happens then? They, they go off to the Royal Logistics Depot. Where's that? Come on, you know where it is. Come on, Gary, where is it? It's the Prince uh, William of Gloucester Barracks at Grantham. Yeah. That's uh, not far either. No, no. They go for a five-day basic training package. So so what, what basic training package, isn't that just what they'd learned as recruits? But this is making sure... Well, it's reinforcing it's it. It's a polish up, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's important, isn't it? Yeah, and as a result, they were familiarised with the new SAATA2 rifle, uh, which were all zeroed in for their particular needs. Well, yeah, because not they need it to fit them. Yeah, uh, they also practice uh, advanced NBC drills. Why would I think that was important? Well, because we're talking about weapons of mass destruction. Yeah. Uh, so they had to practice putting on their respirators, for example. Uh, Saddam Hussein had been known to use poisonous gas. Yeah. Uh, checking the fittings, using the detector papers, and of course carrying out the complex eating, drinking, urination, and my favourite, defecation skills. Yeah, because they they are yeah blunt bl- tap all this stuff. You must have done some of that. We did that? NBC training, yes. Did you do the defecation drill? I was very good at defecation drill. <laughs> yeah. uh, they also review their medical uh, medical training um, and uh, the use of field dressings, morphine and uh, azimuth chest seals. I don't know what that is. It sounds or It does, yeah, it just seals the wound. Oh, dear. And, of course, they had training on the desert conditions, flora and uh, fauna that they were bound to encounter. Yeah, because they'd be running around looking at all the flora and fauna. yeah. Well, it's it's going to be the first time they're ever in the desert for 99.9% of them, you know. Now, warnings were given on the necessity of keeping all filters clean and the existence of horrible diseases, such as cutaneous leishmaniasis. What's leishmaniasis. that? Leishmaniasis. Can you tell us what that is, Gary? Which they'd never heard of 
and the importance of religiously following the necessary malaria precautions. Well, I've but, never heard of cutaneous leishmaniasis. I'm not? learning Spanish at the moment, and that's harder. Uh, they were given uh, lectures, uh, demonstrations of uh, techniques of resisting interrogation and uh, and uh, convert also how to look after and treat uh, Iraqi POWs that they might encounter. It's important. Yeah. Now, finally, they had detailed briefings on the origins of Iraq war, uh, the Iraq war, and the likely shape of the campaign that lay before them. And once more, this is uh, Bombardier War and Why. Yeah, we were given a talk about the general outline of the plan, uh, what, uh, what the general outline of the plan was, what we were intended to do, and what the major objectives of the wars of the war would be. We were not going to see any civilians from here on, so we were privy to a lot of information. Uh, it went on like this throughout the whole war. The briefings through the guys I was with was superb. We knew exactly what we were doing, uh, uh, where we were going, what we were doing, when we were doing it, and why. That's good. That's something I had never experienced because the passage of information is send three importance we go to a dance. It's literally as bad as that with Chinese whispers in it here. Yeah, that's the old... Yeah. Yeah, I'm too young for that. Now, embedded in these briefings were frank assessments of the probability of chemical attack from Saddam Hussein's presumed stockpile of weapons. Hmm, well, well, what did they guess it would be? Well, it's rather chilling, this, for these young lads uh, at that moment in time. It was estimated at around an 80% probability. Blimey. Blimey, I'm not quite sure where that came from. Now, uh, after this quick reprise of their basic training, they then moved to Catterick Camp. Uh, You know where that is? Catterick. Yeah. Now, by this time, they'd been killed out with an extra set of the Combat 95 uniform. Did you ever wear that Although one? shortages meant that several got green rather than the appropriate de- desert camouflage kit. I'm sorry, I've just got this image of this guy in the desert standing there in green and visible for miles. Well, that's not a joke because uh, I know that for a fact, Dan, Dan Zed... That, that's what happened to him. Many of the men busied themselves buying extra kit. Uh, this is Gucci kit, didn't it, they used to call it. Uh, uh, personal comfort, uh, uh, th- not issued by the army, but sort of recommended. What was sort so, so, um, uh, so, yeah, uh, personal entertainment as well, that, that, that sort of thing. So uh, uh, CD players, that kind of thing. Um, and it's also... Uh, they also find out why they're there, that they, where they're going to be posted to, and where are most of them going to? Well, they'd assumed that they were going to be posted to 7th Regiment Royal Horse Artillery, but uh, they were sent to a close support medical regiment. Uh, that's just one of them. That's Bombardier Ray A, uh, 425 Troop, and he says, Medical Regiment? Oh, my gunner! Why were we going to a medical regiment? And that's... A bit of a surprise for him. Um, I think we need to have a break. I'm, I'm tense. I've got a nervous headache. You know, um, th- th- this sort of randomness, it, it's, it's, it, that would, what do you think it has an effect on them? They're gunners and one or two of them are sent to a medical regiment. How do you think they respond? It makes them a bit more nervous. And uh, what else does it mean? What, random? They're completely in the dark as to their role and duties when they arrive. And as you're completely in the dark, I think we better call it a day. So what's the next episode going to be about? I don't know, Pete. What's the next episode going to be about? I should imagine it's about the Iraq war. People say you're a dumb, useless, great... No, that's just you. (laughs) Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to the show. Blah, blah, blah. If you'd like to support blah, us, blah, you can now buy us a coffee. Blah, blah, Visit www.buymeacoffee.com backslash PGMH. Or visit www.blahblahblahblahblah. And we'd be jolly grateful. Cheers. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?